Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We don't need more coffee shops because we've seen it all already. There's a lot of shops opening up and they're raising up prices. A lot of these people, they come in and then they'll rake up the prices. And then when stuff like this comes out, it starts pushing out little businesses out of the way, which isn't fair for us. They're not there for the community, they're there for themselves to make money. Word travels fast nowadays with Instagram, but everyone loves like their local community little hangout. And I feel like this provided that for our neighborhood. I think there's always going to be people that, you know, they've lived in a neighborhood, it's been a certain way their whole lives, and they're gonna be a little bit resistant to that change. So yeah, of course, but we do everything that we can to make people in this community especially feel welcome here. Even other businesses that started out on the weekends are now going into full-time, year-round business because the traffic's there. Clearly this is right in the middle of an area which has been traditionally Latino that is growing in its diversity. And uh, so I think they made a very brilliant move in moving here because they're getting both an existing customer base as well as a new evolving customer base. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. Hey, Anna, can we play a little guessing game? Okay. I'm going to name a couple of places. You tell me the one that says gentrification to you. Okay. All right. Baskin Robbins 31 flavors or salt and straw ice cream? (laughs) Salt and straw. 24 hour fitness or namaste yoga? By the way, am I saying namaste right? I think so. Okay, go on. <laughs> namaste yoga. TGI Fridays or a restaurant called Forage? <laughs> Obviously Forage. Obviously. Yeah, it's not a hard game, I know. The point is gentrification is so tied to neighborhood commerce, where we shop, where we eat, and where we hang out. And when swankier businesses open in a neighborhood, they might make the people who already live there feel uncomfortable leaving the impression those stores and restaurants and what they're selling isn't really for them. Yeah, people can feel a kind of retail alienation, like this woman who talked to our producer, Miguel Contreras. La mayoría somos gentes de clase trabajadora y los negocios a nosotros no nos afecta ni nos beneficia. That's Florentura. She lives in LA's rapidly gentrifying Highland Park neighborhood. She said that most of the people around here are still working class but that the newer businesses opening in Highland Park don't help them because they're just too expensive. She just said that the fruit stand she used to go to, that they raised the price of fresh squeezed juice from $3 to 5 bucks. And then I asked her who all the new places are for. Los hipsters? Los hipsters. No translation needed. I'm Saul Gonzalez, and this is There Goes the Neighborhood L.A. In this show, the merchants of gentrification will sample coffee, pizza, and beer. A suspect is caught on camera vandalizing a new coffee shop in Boyle Heights. Now, tonight, the owner believes that crime was a warning. Yeah, many people in the area say new businesses are coming in and driving up the rent for everyone. In our last show, we told you about a backlash against art galleries in this same neighborhood, Boyle Heights. When a new coffee house opened here a couple of months back, the backlash widened. Activists marched in front of the business, and arguments broke out on the street between customers and protesters. Oh, really? 
when you're said. supporting gentrifying establishments, you're not standing with the same community you're saying that you're from of and you're living from. Oh no, because if you did, you would make conscious decisions as simple as where you buy a cup of coffee. Where you buy a coffee matters. Where you're putting your money in our community. Why the passion over a single little business opening? Well, coffee houses, especially the kind selling single-origin beans and almond milk cappuccinos, they've become the cliched symbols of gentrification. But who are these people selling us our fancy lattes? And what does it look like from their side of the counter? I'll get a uh, macchiato. Okay. Any nibbles today? Uh, no, not today. This coffee house in L.A.'s Glacelle Park neighborhood just opened three months ago. It's called Little Ripper. Australian slang. A little ripper is a, it's a good little thing. Um, you can yell it out when your team kicks the, the winning goal, or you can tell a kid that he's, he's a little ripper. Yeah, he's a good he's little, a little thing. Ripper. That's Rex Roberts and Lorena Jurado, the married couple who own Little Ripper and also live in the neighborhood. Rex is originally from Melbourne, Lorena from Quito, Ecuador, and this is their first small business together. Oh my God, it's been amazing. I mean, hard work. Absolutely hard work. We're exhausted. Although super gentrified places like Highland Park and Silver Lake are close, this middle and working class neighborhood of apartments and single family homes hasn't really seen a lot of new businesses open. Even as young professional families who are great potential customers have been moving into the area. Many locals who walk over from their homes say they were thirsty for this kind of neighborhood hangout. As she waits for her order, I meet Adrian Leon, who lives in the neighborhood. Do you think a coffee house kind of sends a message that, yeah, the neighborhood's a bit more on the map now, you know? That... Definitely. And this place looks totally trendy. Um, it's very different from some of the other uh, small businesses around. I mean, on this block mainly, there's multiple car repair shops, um, but it's nothing that you want to, like, go and hang out in that didn't really exist before. So this is nice where we can just get to meet our neighbors which we've met so many more neighbors than before. And I know how she feels, because this is my neighborhood. And as a lover of coffee houses, I too am delighted Little Ripper is here. And Little Ripper is cool looking. Gleaming white walls, a counter area inlaid with subway tiles, freshly baked pastries on display behind glass. But Lorena and Rex say they went through financial hell to create all this charm. That was probably the hardest, because you're literally bleeding money. You know, it's all my savings, my 401k, my pension, everything's here. And just to be hit with, here you go, you have to pay another fee, you have to pay another permit. When they spent all their own money, they turned to Kickstarter, raising over $16,000. A lot of that from locals who really wanted to see the coffee house in the neighborhood. So if I had, like, put in some dough into your Kickstarter campaign, what were some of the things I would have gotten back? Get a, free you get coffee? A, you get a couple of free coffees, you get a hat, you get a, a slap on the back and a big thank you and a hug every time you walked in the door. So I get a lot of respect uh, and appreciation absolutely. in return for your Kickstarter dough. Absolutely, yeah. Since it opened, business has boomed a little ripper, partly because of word of mouth and a carefully curated Instagram page. Rex and Lorena know that a coffee house like theirs might leave a bad taste in some people's mouths as too trendy or a stalking horse for gentrification. Lorena has little patience for that criticism. 
I, I'm going to be honest here. What about the Starbucks? What about the McDonald's? And what about the big chain places? What do you say when those places come into your community? I think supporting a mom and pop shop and supporting a small little business is better than supporting a Starbucks and supporting a big corporation. So I think that's the missing point. That you are human scaled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're a small business. We're just trying to make it. We live in the area. We want to better it. And yeah, I think that's the missing point. It's not super controversial to open a new business in a neighborhood like this corner of Glacelle Park, which is still kind of sleepy. The spot where Little Ripper sits was empty before Lorena and Rex got there. But it can be a very different story when a new business replaces an old one. Next up, KCRW's Anna Scott takes us out to eat in Echo Park with the story of battling pizzerias and what it means to be authentically of the neighborhood. If businesses are like barometers of neighborhood change, the ones in Echo Park show a community split between old and new. Along Sunset Boulevard, you see the new Lassen's health food store across from the old Guadalupana Market and the expensive Woodcat coffee shop beside the old Botanica selling herbal remedies, incense, and candles. Right now, I'm sitting outside near Sunset and Alvarado Street with Israel Palacios. He's 37 years old, and for more than 20 years, his family owned a pizza restaurant up the block from here, Pizza Bona. I have a lot of customers that have traveled the world and whatnot, even from New York, that say that the pizza is just incredible. Pizza Bona was cozy and kitschy with wood-paneled walls and Frank Sinatra on the jukebox. Am I making up that there were like red checkered tablecloths? That's a cliche. We actually had kind of like off-green. We had white, we had beige, we had different tables, but we never, we never had the checkered. Two old Pizza Bona signs still hang on the building. They're red with white letters spelling out pizza. The Bona has been covered up. Because over the summer, a new pizzeria opened there, Cosa Bona. It's run by local celebrity chef Zach Pollock. Cosa Bona serves a fancier pie topped with local cheeses and pepperoni shipped in from the East Coast. Israel hates the sight of it. Instead of being happy at looking at my old place or what it's become... A lot of times when I drive by, sometimes I don't look. It's just upsetting, to say the least. It's the name that really makes him angry. You know, he's trying to fool people. Had he gone a different route, Italian food, a different name, I would have been in there. The first person been in there introduced myself and said, Hey, man, I'm Israel. Nice to meet you. I grew up in this building. Let me see what you've done. It's a great place. We probably could have been friends. Now, it does not look like that's going to happen. Rising rent drove Pizza Bona out. It more than doubled in two years. What they wanted me to pay was 7500 from 3500 They raised it to five and then 5500 And then by two years, it was going to be 7500 Israel's landlords, two cousins who have owned the building for decades, didn't want to be interviewed. Um, at the end of the day, it's not something that, it, it wasn't something that we could not afford. We could have. The question was, was the building worth it at that price? And the simple answer is no. So Pizza Bona closed at the end of 2015. But last year it reopened. Israel found a new space, half a block from the old one. It's a tiny shop hidden away in a strip mall, but the price is right. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I'm used to. But at that time, it was six months without people, you know, with my food, so to speak. 
And by the time I opened, it was nine and a half months. So you wait any longer, people start forgetting about you, regardless of the history. Even though his own business is still alive and well, Israel believes Cosabona stole something from him. You know, gentrification is going to happen regardless where you go. It's either you keep up with the times or you get left behind. Simple. But as far as what the other guys take in my old spot, it's unoriginal. The way he was raised is very different from the way I was raised. Completely different. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had to work for everything. I have. And I still work. Israel doesn't know Zach Pollock, but he believes he lacks authenticity, an idea that comes up a lot in relation to gentrification. When a new business opens in a changing neighborhood, there can be a fine line between fitting in with the old and appropriating it. Next up, the pizza maker across the street says his piece, and we have a gentrification taste test. This food fight that you've been listening to reflects a bigger phenomenon. It's getting harder for anyone to keep a mom-and-pop business going here in Los Angeles. When I meet Zach Pollock after the lunch rush one day at Cosabona, he brings this up. You do see a lot more big capital pouring in, especially as retail becomes less and less relevant with most of it moving online. You see a lot more interest from big money in restaurants. In fact, there's a brand new shopping center right next door to Cosabona. It's leased to a bunch of chains that are supposed to move in soon. A Starbucks, a Chipotle, the Habit Burger Grill, and a vegan cinnamon roll franchise. Cosabona's landlords actually got an offer to sell out to that developer, but said no. So Zach argues they deserve some credit for keeping the place an independently owned pizzeria, even if it's a more upscale one. As for Pizzabona... There's, you know, some angry online narratives where, like, I'm like an evil developer and I came in and, you know, physically pushed Pizzabona out and then took it for myself. No. In my opinion, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you probably know that the owner of Pizzabona is pissed about the sign. Basically, his take is that by leaving it up, you're kind of riding off of his loyal customer base from so many years. So I just wonder what you say to that. When I took over the lease here, I had no idea. This was in December of 2015. We were mostly built out when all of a sudden they reopened across the street. They were, I, I didn't think they were reopening. So I like the signs because they sort of, they've been here for a long time. They have become kind of, I mean, they're not technically historical, but kind of like a symbol of the neighborhood. To Israel, they're a symbol of a neighborhood that feels less welcoming than it once did. To Zach, the signs are a tribute. He says he didn't know the two restaurants would end up so close together. Had I known that they were going to open across the street, would I have kept the name Cosa Buena? I don't know. I, I definitely would have thought more about it. I, like, I love places like that. I love... Columbo's in Eagle Rock. I love Damon's in Glendale. The last thing I want to do is like step on the feet of the people before me. Columbo's and Damon's are both longtime neighborhood restaurants that haven't changed much over the years. Zach's restaurants are flashier, trendier. And yeah, he's not surprised that Cosa Bono has been pointed to as an example of gentrification. I mean, I'd, I'd have to be like living in a hole to not expect it at some level. But he doesn't quite know what to do with that. I'm 
a chef first and foremost. You know, I'm not a developer. I'm way underfunded to be developing anything. So, you know, my focus is on the food and by association, the experience of dining. And, you know, if that experience is a reflection of myself and I guess I as a younger person that didn't live in Echo Park uh, until or on the east side until four years ago, sure, I understand that, that I'm wrapped up in it in a way, but it's not, it doesn't, I don't know, it's a, tricky, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one. I asked him if he's tried Pizza Bona's food. I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I've tried it. I'm not saying I'm not going to the Pizza Bona. I'm saying I'm not going into that question. <laughs> Israel says he hasn't tried Cosabona. I don't need to. My, 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 my food speaks for itself. But you put my food up against his any day, and you'll be coming to mine. Okay, we'll see about that. I rounded up Saul and Miguel for a pizza taste test at Echo Park Lake. We got two margarita pies, one from Pizza Bona and one from Cosa Bona. Just to set the base, we all like pizza? Yes. I love pizza. But who doesn't, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. One thing that's obvious as soon as we open the boxes is that the Cosa Bona pizza is much thinner and lighter. I think maybe the, the fancy ones like once every three, four weeks. It's a little more refined. It cost $14.50, and I could have eaten the whole thing myself. The old school one is, you know, buy like four of them for a party. The Pizza Bona one cost $18 and could have fed four people. It's like straight up comfort food. Saul takes a bite of each. I hate to be Switzerland here. I would happily eat either one of them. They're different in exactly the way that you would expect them to be different. It almost seems wrong to compare them, really, because they're just very different pizzas. And you would hope that you could have both in the neighborhood. For now, Echo Park does have both. In fact, Israel says even though he's in a smaller space, Pizza Bona is doing better than ever thanks to an increase in takeout orders. He might hate what Cosa Bona represents, but so far it hasn't hurt business. Okay, we've had the coffee, we've had the pizza, now time for beer. You're going to hear from two entrepreneurs going from making lagers and pale ales in their apartment to running a brewery. But for their business to prosper, they're counting on a ton of investment, public and private, to revive an L.A. landmark. I'm standing on the banks of the Los Angeles River in L.A.'s Elysian Valley neighborhood, watching a predator on the hunt. So what kind of bird is that? It's an osprey. And what's it doing? It's looking for fish. It's a fish-eating bird of prey. That's historian Wade Graham. He writes a lot about cities and the environment, including Los Angeles's ambivalent relationship with the river. We tend to look at the river as a kind of a failure or an eyesore or an embarrassment. So people used to say, well, you know what the signature wildlife species of the Los Angeles River is, don't you? It's a shopping cart. For most of L.A. history, the river could also be a menace, topping its banks during heavy rains and flooding neighborhoods. So, in the 1930s, concrete was poured along its sides and bottom, and the L.A. River was turned into what it is today, essentially a 15-mile-long storm drain emptying into the Pacific. They took a chaotic, violent natural system uh, that was unsuited to the aspirations of the city fathers, and they turned it into something that allowed those aspirations that allowed four million people to settle in its floodplain. So as a designed object, uh, it it has performed beautifully. They tamed it. Well, they killed it. Now there are plans underway, big plans, to bring the LA River back to life. 
starting along this stretch of it through Elysian Valley, also known to locals as Frogtown. Along this 11-mile span of the waterway, the river's bottom was never paved over, and it still looks like a river. There are willow trees growing on small islands populated by egrets and ospreys, and in the water, there's carp and bass. A few years ago, a bike path and pocket parks were put in along its banks, and now there's even summer kayak racing. Looking ahead, officials want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on river restoration, and star architect Frank Gehry has been tapped to help provide a vision. This effort is usually cast in environmental terms, ripping out the concrete and returning the L.A. River to a more natural state. But in a city where development is exploding, Wade sees other forces at play. Water fronts are money. Water fronts are money. Rotterdam, Tokyo... New York City, Chicago, this is true everywhere. And we neglected ours for too long. But the money can still be made here. There is a gold rush going on. And the first prospectors in that gold rush are a string of small businesses that have opened along this stretch of the L.A. River. A Mexican restaurant serving gourmet tacos, a coffee house, of course, and two guys who are here to brew some beer. Do those barrels go right to the taps? Those go right to the taps. So we, we serve right directly from our cold room to the other side of the wall is the is the taps, yeah. So the other side of this wall is... It's Frogtown Brewery, an artisanal beer maker and tap room. My favorite beer on tap right now is a beer called Hazy River. It's a New England-style IPA, so it's going to be hazy, but it's going to be really juicy and fruit-forward. That's Adam Kestel. Last year, he and his business partner, Mike Voss, who were both home brewers, opened this business. It's on an industrial street that dead ends at the river. They say plans to revive the river and make it into a regional destination are key to their own success. I I think it's critically important. I mean, I think that's part of the reason that drew us to this area is all the things that are happening with the LA River. And most of the customers that are here this morning are people who are running or biking along the bike path this morning. Uh, So I think it's critical to our business. Their cavernous brewery is a reminder of the riverfront's grittier days. Oh, this place before was a, a manufacturing business, and they made life-size sex dolls. Right where you're standing is where they would be painting a sex doll. And the cool thing is that you could actually come in and, and have yourself 3D scanned and have an exact replica. I mean, these guys are really good. Exact <laughs> replica of yourself made. Away from its industrial zone, Elysian Valley is a largely Latino and blue-collar community, its residents living in modest, single-family stucco homes. Nestled between the I-5 freeway on one side and the river on the other, outsiders overlooked the neighborhood for decades. Some residents wish they could go back to those days. Elena Loveless is one of them. She grew up in the neighborhood. I'm fighting the gentrification. I'm fighting all these businesses that are involved in the neighborhood. At least, you know, I need to, I need to fight it. I need to slow it down. I can't, I can't give up. I just can't. And Elena has special contempt for outsiders who use the word Frogtown for Elysian Valley, like Adam and Mike back at Frogtown Brewery. Elena feels the same way as Israel, the owner of Pizza Bona. Newcomers are coming in and appropriating what was there before. It pisses me off because that is a name that a lot of the longtime residents came up with many, many years ago when we had tons of frogs in the neighborhood, little, you know, actual frogs coming from the river. And now all of a sudden, all these gentrifiers, all these people that are coming from different areas 
are making money off that name and they don't really know the meaning of that name. They don't know what, where it came from or what it meant. Mike and Adam, they say they owe no one an apology for naming their business Frogtown. It's a cool name and there's a lot of history behind it, like many names. And we thought, you know what, we can live up to this. We can make something of Frogtown Brewery that the neighborhood will be proud of. As plans move ahead to improve the L.A. River, more businesses are following the brewery into Elysian Valley, from restaurants to a big live-work complex. Remember Wade Graham's line, waterfronts are money. From the beginning, the Los Angeles River has been a real estate phenomenon, as well as a hydrologic phenomenon, and a biological phenomenon, and a political phenomenon, and an engineering phenomenon. And it remains a real estate phenomenon. And if you look around you, that's what's happening in the city right now, particularly in this part of the city right now. Uh, It's changing under our feet, all around us, really fast. Adam and Mike, well, they plan on doubling their manufacturing capacity in the coming weeks. And they soon expect to sell their beer in supermarkets and bars around L.A., spreading the name of Frogtown far and wide. Listeners, we really want to hear about your own experiences with change in L.A. or wherever you live. Go to kcrw.com slash there goes the neighborhood. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, so subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe. On the next show, with prices rising, who's moving to L.A. and who's over it? I would rather starve in Los Angeles than live in Texas. Let's do it. Let's hit on all eight cylinders. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm in Cali. There's, there's no better opportunity than California. None. L.A. in particular. Yeah, exactly. I went to see the ocean for my first time yesterday in my whole 23 years of life, and it was, it was beautiful. Last week, we tackled the role art and artists play in neighborhood change. Here's some of what you told us. My name is Ruth Chase. I grew up in Venice, California. I'm an L.A.-based artist. However, I live in Northern California. So I think that the general population needs to recognize the value of a community-based gallery. And also the recognize the value of artists who work on behalf of the community. And I just don't want the population to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? That all art and art galleries are bad. They're not. There Goes the Neighborhood's reporter is Anna Scott. Our producer is Miguel Contreras. Celeste Wesson is our editor. Sonia Geis is our managing editor. J.C. Swadek and Ray Guarna are our recording engineers. At WNYC Studios, our producer is Paige Cowett. Our executive producer is Karen Frillman. And Casey Means is our technical director. Our composer is Hannes Brown, with additional music by Terrence Blanchard. I'm Saul Gonzalez. The series is supported by the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. Thanks for listening.